This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast, episode number 51. Today is Friday, September 7th, 2018. I am Patrick Moran. Happy NFL opening weekend, my friends. Got a packed episode for you today. My featured guest will be New York Times bestselling author, five times over, Jeff Perlman. We'll discuss Jeff's brand new book titled Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, available next week. Jeff takes us inside that book which I can't wait to read. And we also talk about Jeff's career, included some of the other sensational books he's written, written about guys like Brett Favre, Walter Payton, Barry Bonds, as well as the 86 Mets and that Cowboys dynasty of the 1990s that I cannot stand, but I'm sure it's a great read. Great stuff there. And I get a few solid Jim Kelly and Joe Cribbs, Buffalo Bill stories from him as well. That was a lot of fun. Going to bring that to you in a minute. After that, it's the running with Joe, with my guy Joe from New York City. We're talking reaction to my Jerry Sullivan podcast from Tuesday, as well as a chat about the Buffalo Bills, including some week one and season predictions from Joe as well. And lastly, I'm debuting a brand new segment today with my buddy Scully from Buffalo, called Spin It Scully, and the context is this is a dude who will spin absolutely anything you say about the Buffalo Bills into a positive. He's the master spinner in all kinds of entertaining. I'm betting Bills fans are going to love Scully, and they're going to love the Spin It Scully segment, which I will have on from time to time throughout the Buffalo Bills season. For those new to the podcast, I suggest going to the Moranalytics podcast page on iTunes or you can go to moranalytics.com and check in the archives of some other shows we've done. We've had some really great guests on the show already. People like Adam Schefter, Josina Anderson, Jenny Vrentes, Adam Kaplan, Richard Deitch, Ross Tucker, Tyler Dunn, Tim Graham, Sal Capaccio. I could literally go on for a long time. You get the idea. Tons of great guests. Go back and listen to those shows. Anyway, today, a packed show, so I don't want to waste any more time farting around here at the top. Let's get right down to business. Here's my interview with best-selling author Jeff Perlman. 
followed by the running with Joe and the debut of Spin It Scully. All right, my guest today is one of the busiest dudes I've ever come across. He's a New York Times bestselling author five times over, and I'm sure that'll reach six when his latest, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL hits stores next week. He also writes a weekly column for The Athletic and contributes to a bunch of places, including The Bleacher Report and CNN. If that's still not enough, he also co-hosts the Two Writers Sling and Yang podcast. I'm talking about Jeff Perlman. What's up, Jeff? Thanks for making this a stop on what's been, I'm sure, a whirlwind media tour for you. Man, I just got tired reading off all these things that you do. And I also pick up my daughter from school, which I'm doing right now. So I uh, throw that into the mix. That might be the most impressive thing there. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we're going to get to your new book about the USFL in just a second, a book I'm really looking forward to reading. But before that, tell me, what was it like growing up in New York? And did you grow up a big sports fan as a kid? You know, I grew up in, not near Buffalo. I grew up in Mayo Pack, New York. Right. It's uh, it's Putnam County. It's just north of New York City. And, um, funny i was a uh, i was a big jets fan as a kid i was a big uh i was a big mets fan as a kid and um i played sports but no one in my family gave a crap about sports literally nobody so uh, you know we didn't get sports illustrated we got sport magazine the one thing my parents did for me and let me throw a super bowl party every year for all my friends which is cool they didn't care about the game at all and the other thing they did is um my dad used to bring me home all the sports books from the library. So he worked in Stamford, Connecticut, and he'd bring home all these books to me for the library. And it really sort of nurtured my love of sports and sports writing and everything. Um, you know, because I was reading all these great writers and reading about all these athletes. So that was really, really important for my career and for, and for um, you know, my development as a, uh, as a writer. Now, why did you choose to go to the University of Delaware for college? And I always ask my guests this, were there other schools that you considered going to? Um, well, I considered going to uh, Syracuse, but it's too expensive. I considered going to Penn State, but, um, but I, you know, I didn't get in. <laughs> and I, the only other place I was going to go was SUNY Albany. And uh, I was either going to go to SUNY Albany or Delaware. And I went to Delaware because SUNY Albany was really cold the day I went. So we, uh, we decided to go to, went to Delaware instead. I ran a year of cross-country and track, wrote for the newspaper for a long time. And, um, and here I am writing books. Now I've read that you began your career as a food and fashion writer for the Tennessean in Nashville. Is that correct? Yeah. I was the worst food and fashion writer in the country. <laughs> Truly. I was the worst. I can't cook. I can't dress, but, um, they had one opening, one job opening and it was to be a food and fashion writer. So I took the gig and, um, I, you know, it was only like a term, like my main, my main track was going to be eventually sports. There's the one thing they had an opening for. And then actually I moved from that to the, I covered cops for a while because I, I kept screwing up so much. They put me on the cops beat to learn how to report. <laughs> then I bounced to the music. I was a the rock music writer. And then uh, I had the illustrious and very important high school wrestling beat. So I was a high school wrestling writer before. Uh, and I got hired at Sports Illustrated after being a high school wrestling writer. I was going to ask. I, I mean, you must have done something right because in 96, you get hired by SI. And I've read that that was your dream job. And that 15 years before that, you guaranteed your mom you'd write for Sports Illustrated someday? Man, you've done your reading. Yeah, I, I have, did. Yes. I, when I was in junior high school, uh, or maybe I was a freshman in high school, I told my mom once, I was like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. 
my mom was, you have to be realistic. Well, you're a Jewish family in New York, lawyer, doctor, those kind of things. And I was like, no, I'm telling you, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. And the day I got hired at Sports Illustrated, I called my mom and I was like, I told you. I was crying. I told you. <laughs> and uh, my mom was very supportive. It's not like she was a bad mom. She was a great mom. But she, and she was happy about it. But it was, they didn't know any better. They didn't know. They didn't know about sports. Magazines seemed far off. The idea of being a writer seemed kind of fantastical. So, uh, yeah. In 2002, you go on the Newsday. You stay there for two years, and then you left to start writing books. What made you decide on going the Newsday, firstly? And when did you realize that it was time for you to start pursuing being becoming a book author? Uh, so I had a moment at Sports Illustrated where I knew I had to leave. I was covering Major League Baseball. I really enjoyed it, but I was getting kind of beat up. In 2001, I was at the World Series when the Diamondbacks were playing the Yankees, and I was uh, I was covering one of the early games at Yankee Stadium, and I started having like a stomach flu, and I had to leave the game early. It's a true story. And I went home uh, to my wife's. Now she was at my girlfriend, but my now wife's apartment, and I watched the game from her from her couch, and I ended up in extra innings. I think Jeter hit a home run to win the game, mm-hmm. and I was genuinely happy not to be at the game. Like I was happy to be on a couch watching. I, I was happy not having to hear all the cliche questions, having to get hit in the head by a cameraman, you know, waiting 20 minutes to ask Derek Jeter something he didn't really want to answer. I just was tired. So I took a job in Newsday to the shock of everyone I knew, um, just walking around New York City and interviewing crazy people for a year, which is one of the best jobs I've ever had, actually. And it was a really good sort of trigger for me to do something else in my life. Now, your first book was called The Bad Guys One, a book about the 1986 New York Mets. What was the inspiration for it? And since I'm assuming you grew up a Mets fan, I'm pretty sure this one remains a little extra special to you for that. And for a lot of reasons, it did spend eight weeks on the New York Times bestseller list as well. Yeah, I was kind of a dumb idiot. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I wrote a book because uh, other people are writing books and an agent came up to me and said, you want to write a book? And I said, okay, that was pretty much it. And, uh, <laughs> She said, how about the 86 Mets? It wasn't even my idea, even though I grew up with that team. I was like, yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty good. And the next thing I know is on the New York Times bestseller list week after week. And I I just didn't know any better, you know, and it was fun. And it was, you know, you're interviewing your childhood heroes. It was just really cool. Right. It was a great, it was just a great entrance point for me into what's been a really, I mean, writing books can be a beast. You buy yourself a lot. It's really isolating at times. But at the same time, I mean, I've gotten to see my kids grow up. I've been able to like cover really interesting events. You then wrote Love Me, Hate Me, a book about Barry Bonds. And I read that you called it the hardest book of your career to write. Why is that? Uh, he was a pain. He was really difficult. He didn't want to talk. He didn't want to cooperate. I dug super hard into his life. I mean, I'm talking, I interviewed a Cub Scout den mother. I tracked down anyone you could think of. So um, it was just a bear. It was just a bear to write. And uh, it's hard when a guy actively doesn't want you doing the book. That's a challenge. Sure. Um, but ultimately, you know, it, I can make the argument that's my best book. I mean, it's, it was, it was, I think it was pretty strong. But the worst part was it came out two weeks after Game of Shadows, the other Bonds book. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, it just vanished into the abyss. And that was, that was my first taste of what it is to spend your life working on a book and then have the thing bomb, you know? Sure. I should add that all these books I'm talking about now and the ones I'm going to, you can go to jeffperlman.com for more info on that, how to buy them. And I'll put that all in the show notes as well. So moving on, 
Boys Will Be Boys was a book about the Dallas Cowboys and their dynasty of the 90s. Now, I hated the Dallas Cowboys because they beat my Buffalo Bills in the Super Bowl twice, but whatever. That book went to number six on the New York Times bestsellers list. How did you feel about writing that book? Why did you want to do that one? I just thought it was a great topic. I really did. thought the characters were rich. It's kind of like the 86 Mets, except um, crazier and weirder. You know, when when the star... When a star wide receiver is um, stabbing someone in the neck with a pair of barber scissors, you know you got something special. There, <laughs> you know? And that's Michael Irvin. The opening scene of that book is, is him stabbing someone in the neck with a pair of scissors. It's crazy. Wow. So, um, so, so, so it just really, it was just a fun experience. It really was. It was fun. And I think so, it's still my best selling book. And yeah, it just meant a lot to me. It was really, I wasn't a Dallas Cowboy fan, but that doesn't matter. I'm a fan of characters or sure. the teams. I don't even care about teams. I'm just about, and there were so many rich characters. I mean, that, that just, that team was fascinating because they did not care. They did not look one iota into makeup of a, of a person. Like if you, if you were arrested for doing drugs or child abuse or what do you name it? They were just like, yeah, we don't care. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, they would. So I'm not saying I would want my team to be that way, but they were a very enjoyable team to write about. Sure. Next book. The Rocket That Fell to Earth. It's a book about Roger Clemens, a book where I read that you called it your least favorite book. What was it yeah. about this book that made it your least favorite? Uh, there are two factors. Number one, he was just a guy who lacked any introspection. And it's hard to write about someone who's not introspective. Like he, he cared about, you know, I don't know what he cared about. He cared about he cared about baseball, cared about women, cared about baseball, probably cared about having a good steak, but there's no depth there. And uh, the other thing is, while I was writing it, uh, they found out another Roger Clemens book was being written. So my publisher said, you need to turn this in five months early. And I just feel, if I'm just being honest with you, it's just, I I feel like I left something on the table. Like it wasn't quite the book I wanted to write. And uh, I wanted it to be more than it was. And it's okay. It's fine. If you can get it for a dollar on Amazon, you're going to get yourself a good deal. But it's not my best book. You know what? I really respect the blunt and honesty of you. I, I, I respect <laughs> the hell out of that. I really do. Now your next book is about my favorite athlete ever. Sweetness, a book about Chicago bears legend, Walter Payton. You've called this the hardest, most rewarding, painful and joyful book of your career all at once. Why is that? It was a beast to the point where I was uh picture him running next to me and like have these conversations in my head with Walter Payton, which is super it's like a method actor on crack. doesn't really make any sense, but that was me. And I just, I found him fascinating. Um, he was dead. And that sounds really blunt, but it's, it adds to it. It makes a character all the more, you know, you have a conclusion to his life. And you're going to write about that. Nobody ends joyfully. You know, so you have to write about this tragic ending to his life. It was a dizzying. It was really hard. But I think it's that or the USFL book are my two best books. I, I would I, I'll be saying that for a long time, I think. All right, I got two more to run through here, and then we're going to get to USFL. I want to go through all of them, because, I, I mean, they're, they're just all different, and they're worth Just to be clear, I'm happy talking about all these. I don't care. You don't have to ask me about the USFL or else. You don't want it all. I'm honest with you. <laughs> no, I don't care. I do, you know, it's your show. All right, Showtime. It's a book about the Lakers dynasty of the 80s, a team I was obsessed with watching when I was a teenager. That, was, that went on to become your fourth New York Times bestseller list effort, which by the way, that's kind of ridiculous at that point. What inspired you to do a book on this Lakers era? 
Well, I had two things. Number one, um, I just found magic and Kareem such a fascinating sort of dynamic. Uh, number two, I love Los Angeles and I knew it would take me out to California a lot, which would be great. And actually, that's it. And the funny thing is, I live in California now because of that book. I was coming out here a lot. I loved it. Uh, at the same time, I was coming out here to do Jim Rohn's television show a lot. I said to my wife, let's move to California. I'm not moving to California. Let's, let's move to California. I'm not moving to California. Well, just come out with me once. She comes out with me once. It was winter. It's probably snowing in New York. Wonder, you know, hanging out with the palm trees. She's like, all right, we'll move to California. <laughs> so that book, if nothing else, um, I mean, I, I always, I enjoyed that process a lot, that book. It was very fun to write. And uh, it got me out here, which, you know, makes it, uh, gives it a special place in my heart. Your seventh book, Gunslinger, a book about Brett Favre that did incredibly well on the New York Times bestseller list. You call this one of the most riveting books that you've worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't expect it to be. I actually wrote that book because I wanted to do the USML book. And I knew I needed a big ticket book to get someone to allow me to, to pay for a USML book too. And it did work. But um, I was not that enthused going into that book. And it might have been the most fun I ever had writing a book because the fun family is just insane. They're so joyful, so honest, so open, so upfront. I consider this is so weird. Brett Favre didn't talk to that book. I consider Brett Favre's mom to be a friend. You know, like I text Brett Favre's mom every now and then just to be like, how are you feeling? How's it going? They were just really good people. And it's also weird. I'm a liberal Jewish New Yorker, and I kind of fell in love with the state of Mississippi. There's a lot of complications with that state, but as far as the people and the honesty and sort of the down-homeness of it all and the food, I just, I really embraced it. And I, I really enjoyed that book in a huge way. Last question. Then I want to get to the USFL book. For those listening who haven't heard it yet, what's your podcast about? And do you enjoy doing a podcast? Yeah, I love it. Um, I do love it. It's uh, and I got no money from it, not even much glory. But a lot of people seem to enjoy it. It's um, it's just me and another writer. I pick a writer every week, and we just have a conversation for forty, forty-five minutes, just about writing. Not, not about careers. I, I try not to go. I don't want to hear, you know. And then I was there, and then I was there. I'm more fascinated in like sure individual stories and the process and what it's like and what you hate and your hardest story you've ever worked on and stuff like that. And it, you know, it's really. Uh, it's been really fun. I think it's helped me as a writer because we're learning new little tricks all along. Let me read the description to your newest book and then I'll get a little insight and reaction from you. And it reads, In Football for a Buck, New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman draws on more than 400 interviews to unearth all the salty, untold stories of the craziest sports entities that have ever captivated America. From 1980s drug excess to airplane brawls and player coach punch outs. Wow. So backroom business deals to some of the most enthralling and revolutionary football ever seen. Perlman transports readers back in time to this crazy, boozy, audacious, unforgettable era of the game. He shows how fortunes were made and lost on the backs of professional athletes and also how 30 years ago, Trump was a scoundrel and a spoiler. This is sports as high entertainment and a cautionary tale of the dangers of ego and excess. Man, that sounds just that description alone sounds like you gotta read this. It's riveting. Man, when you when you put it that way, sounds pretty good. <laughs> when you write a book, you know, between doing media stuff, such as you're doing this podcast right now and a packed schedule. I heard you on the radio show with Bucky and Sully in Buffalo yesterday, and I'm I mean, I know your books. I see you all over the place. You know, not to mention a bunch of book signings. 
that have you go to a bunch of different cities coming, I'm sure. How physically and mentally exhausting does that get for you? Yeah, it's, uh, it beats on you. I, um, it's kind of funny because it's almost like maybe damn to get what you asked for. Like I want, I, I want the book to sell. And more than that, more than that, actually, I just want people to read it. Like I want people to read it. People are like, is it okay if I take it out from the library? Yes. Take it out from the library. That's what a library is for. I just, you work hard and you dig and you dig and you dig and then you want people to read it. But a big part of that is promoting it. And I'm sure in a matter of minutes, I'll be telling you some stories that I've told seven times today and 70 times this week. And that's totally cool. But it does beat you up a little bit. It's just kind of weird. It just kind of beats you up a little bit. And if you want to go on a diet, like every time I promote a book, and I'm not a heavy burner, I lose uh, five to nine pounds every time I promote a book. Wow. What is it about this book specifically that's most special to you? Oh man, it's my, uh, I'm not just saying this. It's my dream book. It's my dream sports book. I, um, like the USFL is my childhood, just like the 86 Mets were, but even more so. The USFL is my childhood. I was a kid in Mailpack, New York, going to the Mailpack library. I remember seeing Herschel Walker on the cover of Sports Illustrated. The headline said, Hitting Pay Dirt. And it was him in a general's uniform. And I opened the magazine and there were all the covers in the USFL, just insane, colorful, explosive helmets, helmets. And I was just like, man, this is freaking, there's something about that that just set off a million fireworks in my little 10 year old brain. And I ended up loving the USFL. I loved everything about it. From the on-field to the off-field to the intrigue, the rise, the fall. I was a general's fan. I loved Donald Trump as owner of the generals because he was spending money on great players. I mean, I loved everything about it. So I had wanted to write a book for years and years. I, I never really could pull the trigger on getting a book deal. And finally, you know, Hod Mifflin gave me a book deal. And it was everything I thought it would be. It was actually everything I thought it would be. It was that good. Before I let you go, I've heard on another show, you tell USFL stories about Jim Kelly and Joe Cribs. The Jim Kelly story about the secretary at One Bills Drive, that's semi-infamous in Buffalo, but there's plenty out there who don't know about it. And I personally had never even heard about the Joe Cribs thing with the Bills in the USFL. And I'm sure most fans haven't either. So please tell us, what's that all about? All right. So the Jim Kelly story is he was, you know, he was drafting that 83 draft, you know, the Marino, Elway, Ken O'Brien, great draft. And um, he told the Bills beforehand, I'm not going to you. Do not draft me. I don't want to go to Buffalo. Uh, you know, he just spent his time in Miami, blah, blah, blah. Well, the Bills draft him. They ignore him. And he is in the office. Because he feels doomed. It's you have to go to the NFL. What are you gonna do? So he's in the office with his agent negotiating with the Bills. And George Allen, who at the time was the uh, uh Bruce Allen, excuse me, who at the time was the general manager of the Chicago Blitz, 25 years old, um, finds out that they're in negotiating with the Bills and he calls the uh the office and gets the secretary for the Bills general manager and says, um, hey, this is so and so. I'm I'm a I'm a relative of Jim's agent. We have a family emergency. Can you just put him on the phone, please? And she's like, hey, so also you have a you have a phone call. There's a family emergency. Picks up. Listen, this is Bruce Allen with the USFL. I know you're there negotiating with the Bills. You do not want to sign with them. They um he Jim doesn't want to play there. You know, we right. will take care of you. Come to the USFL, we will take care of you. They actually make an excuse, leave, and within maybe two weeks. Jim Kelly is in Houston signing with the Houston Gamblers of the USFL. Wow. It's a crazy, yeah. 
And Cribs is even better because Cribs, maybe not better, but you know, Cribs, people forget how good he was. Great running back. And at a time in the 1980s when there were a ton of great running backs, I think in different eras, Joe Cribs would have been thought of as one of the top five running backs in the NFL. Um, He's playing for Buffalo and he's fine with it. He's an Alabama kid, but he's fine with it. And he had two things happen. There was one season when he made the Pro Bowl, but got hurt. And his agent was Lee Stein. Uh, no, his agent was Jerry Arkovich. And Jerry Arkovich said to the Bills, look, I know he's hurt, but it would really be, I think, a nice gesture if you flew Joe and his wife uh, to Hawaii for the Pro Bowl. And they wouldn't do it. And then Joe had, a, uh, Joe had an option in his contract. If he cleared 1,200 yards, uh, he got a certain bonus. And in the last game of the season, the Bills kept held him to maybe 13, nine, I think nine carries. Uh, so he wouldn't break it. And they didn't pay him. And Joe Cribbs was super bitter about both of those. So the USFL comes along. It's Birmingham. You know, it's his home state. Stallions are a pretty good team. And he has no loyalty to the Bills whatsoever. Or the NFL. He doesn't care. And he leaves and he signs with the Birmingham Stallions. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. I to, Now, I have a Marv Levy story that's even better. Oh, go ahead, man. Go ahead. All right. So Marv Levy is the, um, you know, he was a coach of the Kansas City Chiefs way before the Bills. And he got fired. And a couple of years later, he's hired to coach in the USFL. And he's hired to coach the Chicago Blitz. But in the offseason between 83 and 84, in the weirdest trade in the history of organized sports, the Chicago Blitz and the Arizona Wranglers are traded for one another. Because the owner of the Chicago Blitz lives in Arizona, and he doesn't like making the three-hour flight from Phoenix to Chicago for games. So he actually, the organizations are traded for each other. And... What was the Chicago Blitz is now the Arizona Rangers. What was the Rangers is now the Blitz. Well, Marv Levy is hired to coach the Chicago Blitz. And he shows up and he thinks he's going to have the Blitz who were the uh, the runners up in the Eastern Conference. Instead, he has a team that went 4-14 four and 14 the year before. Huh. But nobody bothered, nobody bothered to tell him. And he gets there and he's coaching this organization. And their owner, the owner was a guy named Dr. James Hoffman. He quit during the year. He was like, I'm done. I'm just done. I'm done with the USFL. The league takes it over. Marv Levy, the team is so cheap that Marv Levy um, and Bill Polian, who was the GM there, are bringing in toilet paper, their own toilet paper from home for the bathroom. They were wow. the cheapest organization. The interesting thing also, one more thing is, the Blitz, uh, their training camp or their headquarters was at May, a converted high school, Mainline High School. And at the same time, the Chicago Blitz were, were training there, the movie The Breakfast Club was being filmed. So even though they were a crappy team and even though they had no money, they were getting all the, the leftover food that Ali Sheedy and the, uh, the other uh, actors weren't eating. So that was the one positive memory of time with the blitz. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be in your book and I'm looking forward to reading it. What do you think could have came in the USFL had they run things a little differently? Maybe if they were a little more patient. I mean, you, you mentioned it earlier too. It was such an intriguing time with football and such an intriguing league with a lot of really good, talented players. I think you would have had to play football for a long time. And I think in 1987, when you had the uh, player strike in the NFL, if the USFL were still around, they would have gobbled up people left and right. They really would have. We'd be talking about football in a totally different sort of history. Because they'd have a million more guys jumping to the USFL. So um, I think it could have been something. Steve Young texted me the other day, which is a brief texting thing about the US. He played for the LA Express. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, that spring league should still be here. And I don't know if it would still would be, but it could have been. It could have been. It was a possibility. Football for a buck, the crazy rise and crazier demise of the USFL. That's Jeff Perlman. Follow him on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. You can go to jeffperlman.com to get his new book, as well as 
all the other great books that we just hit on earlier. Jeff, I'll tell you what, man, it's been a pleasure having you on. I hope this book knocks it out the park like so many of your others. I know how busy you are. I really appreciate you taking time to come on and do this podcast as well. Really appreciate you. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, after a week's absence, Joe from Buffalo Wins is back for the running with Joe. And I probably shouldn't, but you know what? I don't care. It needs to be noted that Joe did not tape last week, not because he couldn't, not because he was sick, not because he had a hot date, not because of a work commitment. Nope. There was no running with Joe last week because Joe flat out refused to watch the Bills preseason finale and go on air immediately afterwards to discuss it with me. Good job, buddy. Good job. I'm a real good friend, ain't I? Yeah, you're one of the best ever, man. Yeah, I mean, sorry, dude. I, you know what? Here, I'll be honest with you. I watched, like, the first quarter, and then I felt bad because I told you I wasn't going to watch it, and I turned <laughs> it off. Seriously, I turned it off, and I was like, I'm done with this because I don't want to piss off Pat. I, I, I felt bad. All right, let's get into a couple of things here. So on Tuesday's show, I had Jerry Sullivan on and we talked about the things that you would expect to talk about. And as you would expect, he's still quite bitter with the Buffalo News. I'm going to ask you this. A handful of months later, do you agree with the Buffalo News taking away both he and Bucky Gleason's column? Yes. Why? And I think here's why. They had been doing this for too long. Okay. 20 years, I think Bucky has been a columnist for, basically, there. Sully has been a columnist for 30 years. I think at some point, whether you don't like them or like them or whatever the case may be, I think it just gets old, and you need a new voice in there. Now, at the same time, I don't agree with them taking away columns, sports columns, and not having to do that. Like, If you wanted to replace, get rid of them, fine. Because uh, I do think there are people who don't read the Buffalo News, the sports section, because of them. I know them. I, I mean, I know people that do, and like that's that's I know, fair. I know there's probably some sure. There's some out there, no question about it. Yeah, and I would have, but to take away and not have any columns at all, that's stupid. Like if I were them, I would have called. I would have hired someone, a new voice, which I know they they did recently with a few new people who I I keep forgetting their freaking names, but. Uh, that's something I would say that I don't agree with. Like getting new voices in was fine because I think, and from what I have heard through the grapevine there, like they became, everyone kind of was able to predict what they were going to write about when a, a game story ended. That's what I've heard from within the Buffalo news ranks. And that was, it became easy to predict what they were going to say. And it was, and you, you know, you could blame, you can blame the, the bill sucking or the Sabres sucking or whatever the case may be. But sometimes if you don't have, a different angle to take on negativity, it gets boring and it gets redundant. But yeah, I would have I would have took their stuff away because I think at the end of the day, they they have they have been there too long. And I, and agree or disagree with them, you just can't be. I don't think you can be at a job in media as long as that. Well, I, I don't agree with you. However, I do respect your opinion, and that's why I really like doing these type of segments because you know what, 
I like having varying opinions. Just because I have someone as a guest on the show does not mean that the person who I talk to next has to agree with everything they said. So I do respect the fact you know, that, that you have a stance and that you're not afraid to say what it is. Whether I agree with it or not, that's kind of irrelevant. That's why I have guys like you and guys like Tone Pucks as, you know, recurring guests on this show because I do. I respect all types of opinions and I'm not sure, you know, how they would feel about hearing about this, but I really don't care to be honest with you. You know what I mean? That's your opinion and you're certainly entitled to that. Regardless of how we feel, okay? So they moved on, both of them, and now the two are writing for the Buffalo Maven. And this week, in fact, just over the last couple of days, it started the Bucky and Sully show on 1270 The Fan. They're doing weekday mornings from 9 to 12, which puts them up against that last hour of Howard Simon and uh, Jeremy White on WGR, I'm talking about, of course, over that last hour that they're on, and then the Instigators on WGR. Do you think that this is a radio show that can legitimately challenge WGR? Because as we all know, if you're in the Buffalo sports media, many outlets and many different sets of people have tried and failed to bring any real type of competition to WGR. They got a, lo- a long hill to climb in order to compete with the WGR at the time. So I'm going to tell you why. First and foremost, 12 to 9, or uh, 9 to 12, excuse me, that is not a great time slot. Uh, radio people, for the most part, radio shows, the best time slots are 6 to 10, 3 to 7, because that's when people are driving. You know, from 9, from 9 to 12, not many people are driving. They're already at work. That's what that's where you want to get the slots. That's where you kind of are going to make your your brand for the most part. That's how it is. I think I've learned that through the grapevine through radio. Uh, One thing working for them, I think, is having two hours where you're going against a hockey show. So if you're listening live, we'll just say and you don't want to hear about the Sabres, you can go to that. Bucky and Sully are going to talk about, you know, they're going to talk. They're going to talk more bills and Sabres. Sure. No doubt about that. I agree with that. They're good, especially now. It's, that's why they're doing. They had this launch this week, you know, because it's it's football season. They, they didn't have it in July or anything like that. Um, I think from the history of like sports stations that have gone against GR or any other sports station in general. Like I remember the days of when it was BEN versus WGR, and then you had WGR versus WNSA, and then you had like WEC came along, and then. Now you got 1270 or whatever, but 1270 has kind of done this for a little bit. You have to, the only way you can really compete against WGR, I think, is if you have the sports rights to these teams. That's how NSA beat GR because they had the Sabres rights and WGR didn't have the Bills. The Bills were with Citadel 97 Rock, you know, the edge. And that's how NSA beat them. They got a tall hill to climb, man. I, I'm, not, I'm not too confident in it because people have gone against them. People with name recognition, like, you know, the Bull, he's been there forever, and he got his, you know, they put him back on 97 Rock, you know what I mean? So it's a, t- it's a tough hill to climb. It is, and I'll tell you, and, and it can't be understated enough, and this is no disrespect whatsoever to WGR. I like WGR. I've had many of their guys on this show before, but it is an unfair fight when you do factor in that they do carry the Bills and the Sabres. It's not even arguable. I mean, they have access to in ways that any other competitor is just not going to, whether it's having a coach on every week, certain players to have a show, you know, Eric Wood would did a spot every single week on WGR. They have the coach on McDermott, you know, Brandon beans constantly on there because it's team radio ditto with the Sabres. So that is an unfair fight when it comes to that. I don't know that they can unseat WGR at this point. I think the people who are going to go to 1270, the fan or any other show that comes out 
anytime soon. It's going to be more people who just hate WGR. If you're going to 1270, odds are you just don't like WGR. And I'm sure there's plenty of them out there, but nowhere's near enough. That plus the hardcore fans of guys like Sully and, and Bucky, which again, part of the, the beauty of doing these types of segments is I don't need to agree with my partner. And in this case, again, I don't. I'm still a huge Sully fan. I am. I love the work that he does. I understand the criticism that people have for him. And I certainly can understand why a lot of people don't like him, but I do. And maybe that is because, you know, I'm older and I'm old school and I grew up, you know, maybe not grew up, but from a young adult on reading his columns. And I've always looked forward to reading his columns. You know what I'm saying? So from that regard, maybe it does have some type of nostalgia that I do like having him on. Now, three hours a day, that may be a bit much. I do agree with you. You need to have some new blood mixed in with the old blood. You can't just have two guys talking sports for three hours nonstop, five days a week against WGR. I don't think that's going to work. I do completely agree with you. I want to, if, if it's okay with you, I don't know if you were going to talk about the, the their Maven site. Go ahead. Um, yeah, let's I want to talk that. about that. Yeah, let's do yeah, that real quick. Talk- then we'll get to some Bill stuff. Go ahead. Sure. I, I, I just want to say this. Um, and I'm going to, I wish them the best of luck with the whole 1270 thing. Like they have a better shot, I think with that maybe a little bit, but their, their site that they have now, let me just, let me just say this. I've ne- I've never heard of what is it's a sports exchange, right? Yeah, I've never heard of them. I have, but okay. yeah, go ahead. Okay. I've never really heard of them before. And you know, when they launched, I was like, Ooh, this is kind of interesting. Let me see what this is. Blah, blah, blah. And the site itself, man. And look, I'm a guy, you and I both, like, we we started our own websites way back in, like, 2009, 2010, and I was not that guy who cared about what the site looked like. I was always like, who cares? Just throw words up there. People are going to read that shit. It doesn't matter. Uh, but it's 2018, and people do care how a site looks, and that site looks horrible. And I And this is one of the things that I think Bucky and Sully get a rap on, and it's legit, is that they have not embraced social media or the web or anything like that. Cause that's sub that site looks, it looks terrible. Yeah. It's, and it's, I don't know how, not very modern. Five, how you can get 500 million hits. Like they said they do or whatever the case may be. And that's the site design you come up with. And I could, and if I were them, I don't know how much they're getting paid, you know, or whatever the case may be. I would go to them and go, you need to make a way fresher looking design site than this. Cause that looks, it looks, it looks horrible. It is a bad looking site. And when they launched one more little thing, like and you can tell them you could DM this to them if they want. You do a launch, dude. Like have a have your have a, a Twitter handle for that site. And also don't have like old stories on there from like ten days ago that one is like previewing a Bills Bengals game that just happened like after you launched it. You know, like it's just like those are little things that you need. Like you're, you want me to invest into your product and you know, you're doing it for free. And maybe you're like, Hey, it's for free. Who cares? You got to compete. You got, this is a competitive ass sports environment that's going on right now in Buffalo. We talked about this when the whole, when that whole thing went down in our first cast, you got a lot of people you're competing against. You need to, you need to beat them on the look of your site, on what you're saying, on being on social media, on podcasts. You need to work your ass off. You can't just, Drop a freaking column and like like shit. I'm done in ten minutes, and then go to the freaking piggly wiggly or go to to uh, the you know Coles and have a fresh one. You got to keep working, man. You got to compete against those people. And that site, it looks bad. Okay, and they they need to. And again, 
I'm just giving them personal advice. It looks it looks like crap. Joe with all the hot takes tonight. Wow. I'll tell you what. I, I it's not that I don't agree with you. I do think the site looks kind of crappy. It's it not it's not bad, it's dude. not appealing on the eyes. I'm gonna give you that. But I'm also gonna be honest with you. The only part about that site that I personally myself care about is reading columns from Sully. I, again, I've always Fine. enjoyed reading them. I've just always enjoyed reading his columns. Win, lose. Yeah, I know that they tend to be negative and all this other stuff. I don't care. I watch a game and I always wanted to see his perspective. So just the fact that I don't care if he was doing it on Buffalo Maven or copying and pasting it on a Facebook post. I really don't care. I just wanted right. to read what he has to write. Outside of that, I really don't care. All right, I'll tell you what, man. Let's move on. Let's talk about the Buffalo Bills for a few minutes here. We're not going to break down and analyze the roster. It's already been done on this podcast and everywhere else. But I will ask you this. What's your vibe about this team headed into the season? Now the preseason's over. Cuts have been made. Trades have been made. The roster, at least for the moment, is set. It's pretty apparent that even best case, this team is not going to be a contender this year. So what's your feeling and what's your expectations for this team right now? As I told you numerous times before on, on the run-in, I think last year was a miracle. They got in a 9-7. and seven. And this year, I think the roster is worse than last year. I think the offensive line is in shambles. I do not think Nathan Peterman and Josh Allen are an upgrade over Tyrod Taylor. Maybe next year they will be, or the year after, who knows. But like today, you know, August, you know September 5th, whatever heck this, we're, pod, we're podcasting, it is not. You know, the quarterback is less than it was last year. Uh, The defense, you know, give or take, they might be the same. They might be a little bit better, but I don't think they're going to be like world's better or anything like that. I think this is a four or five win team. Do you agree? Do you agree that Peterman is the right decision to be starting over Allen right now? Uh, Yeah, and it's more about Allen. Okay, I've I've felt since they drafted Allen, Allen seemed to be more of a project. Again, yes. Quarterbacks tend to start from day one, this day and age, if they're drafted in the, in the first round, especially in the top 12. But Allen is a bit of an outlier because he comes from a smaller conference against weaker competition where his stats were not gaudy. Like, you know, that's what everyone said coming out. Like, his stats weren't good. This is when Mel Kuyper said stats are for losers, whatever the hell that means. And uh, I think he's a project. And I think they got to ease him in. And he's got to learn. I, I I don't know how he's going to learn, like sitting on the bench. But hey, you know it, it worked for it worked for uh, Drew Brees. It worked for Philip Rivers. It worked for Aaron Rodgers. I you know Jared Goff. It kind of worked for because he didn't start until like two months into the season last year. Like I don't know what he'll learn, but I I just feel he's a project, and especially especially around this offense. If this is if if this offense had talent from like let's just say 2015, where they had like Percy Harvin. And this is like when we thought Percy Harvey was yeah. going to be good. And Woods, Robert Woods and Sammy. Yeah, that offensive line, Clay, like in his prime, you know, and Clay's still fine. But like, you know, then I would go, hey, you know, I can roll with that because he's going to have a lot of good parts around him. This, this, I'm sorry. This is, this is not a place where you want to be baptism by fire around this, around these guys. How and, many games do you think he's going to end up starting this year, if at all? If you had to take a pick right now, how many games do you see Josh Allen playing? I don't care if it's injury um, Peterman's not playing well. The team's just bad. How many games do you think he starts? That's a t- I, I'm going to say four, and that's if Peterman's healthy. 
and in a way of like, I think I think they're going to be bad, and they're going to be like a two and twelve team at some point, or maybe like you know three and nine, and they're going to be like, hey, that just sounds painful to hear that. It God. is, dude. And, and the and then the roll with Josh and like, oh, okay, let's see what this kid can do. But you know, you're right about Peterman. Like he could get hurt. I'm actually, you know, I was thinking about this, like with them trading McCarron, like, and I, I was. When they traded him, I was like, yeah, fine, get a fifth for him, great. I, there's a part of me that is kind of like, you know what? Maybe you should have kind of waited a little bit because maybe, A, another team would have been, like, more desperate. Like, let's say a quarterback injury happens. Like, Dave, like Derek Carr gets hurt or something like that. And then, like, Oakland panics and goes, oh, my God, we got to do something. We'll give you more than a fifth rounder for McCarron. You know what I mean? Because that's – no one's panicking right now. Like, everyone – it's like, who, who's hurt? Like, there's no quarterbacks right now really who are hurt right now. You know, it's when a guy gets hurt, that's when you start getting desperate. Just like Cleveland got desperate last year when they were going to give a second and a third for McCarron because they were, a, you know, a, a freaking tire fire. But I would have maybe waited a little bit longer, and I also would have just waited just to see how Peterman's going to do, you know, with this first unit. Like, he could get killed back there, dude. Like, what if he gets hurt, and they're like, oh, screw, Greg, we got to throw Josh Allen into the mix. And if you think Josh Allen, and this is predicated on I mean thinking josh allen is a project and not really ready like i probably would have waited maybe a little bit longer because again i have i have zero this could be one of the worst offenses i have seen the bills roll out in like the last 18 20 years man like it, it could be we're talking like todd collins or trent edwards circa 2009 you know what i mean like it, it's i think it's gonna be bad dude i only agree about anything you said because of one thing and man, I'll tell you, it pains me. I, this is a three to six win team, I think as well, but not, you know, everyone talks about these quarterbacks nonstop and I get why. And you know, the wide receiving depth is weak. I get it. Shady is lost a step and he's, you know, he might hit a wall. It very well could happen. Not to mention right. the legal shit, but at the end of the day, the reason why I have to agree with you and all these national people who say the bills are going to be, you know, God, man, you've been looking at the power rankings this week. Almost everyone has Buffalo, if not dead last in the bottom two or three. That's only one reason for me. And I keep beating this horse to death. This offensive line is just absolutely downright deplorable. And it worries me that we went through a summer and an entire preseason and did nothing to address it. It doesn't take Eric Turner from the athletic or in cover one to break down film or any of these all 22 guys. These guys suck. Okay. Dawkins is the only good player on this line. And he's no sure thing, by the way, to become a stud. He's an adequate tackle right now with a lot of promise and a ceiling to become a very good tackle. But I don't want to hear it after that. Okay. Guys like Groy. Well, Groy's to a lesser extent than the others. Bodine, who's not starting, by the way. Miller, Dukas, Mills. These guys stink, and they're not going to get better. I don't care what who the coordinator is. I don't care what kind of scheming and what they come up with. You either you can either block and play well, or you can't. And to me, this offensive line can't. McDermott said one thing about at his press conference on uh, Wednesday that really kind of irks me a little bit. He said he was confident in the offensive line because of how hard he sees them work. Well, you know what, Sean? I work hard at my job, and I still kind of suck at it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> this offensive line's just brutal. They're the worst. And that is going to be the reason why they can't get anything done on offense. I have at least a little bit of belief in Peterman. Not a lot. More than you, but not as much as the optimistic fan. But I, you'll never know. You'll never know. 
nor will you ever know how good Josh Allen could have been as a rookie as long as this offensive line. So if, if I'm mad about Brandon Bean and McDermott for one thing, is that they didn't do shit this summer. They should have recognized how bad of a problem this was earlier. And I mean, what did they do? Go out and get Bodine and Newhouse? You fucking kidding me, man? Yeah, I mean, Jordan Mills is your veteran on this offensive line right now. Oh. He has had the most. He has had the most starts right now of that of the five some. He was like from when did he get there? Like 2015, he started. You know, the first year of Rex, and like I he don't was know. like the Achilles. He was like the Achilles heel of the offensive it line. It feels and like now, he's been here and forever. Now the, and now he's like, oh, he's the guy. <laughs> he's like the veteran. Like it's remarkable what a difference. What like a year. What you, a difference a year makes, really. Because, like, last year at this time, we were all like, oh, hey, the offensive line, like, you know, the one good thing that, like, Rex or whatever that that, that era brought us, like, they had a really good running game. They had a good sure. offensive line. Would? And, like, Incognito? Sure. Big deal. Yeah, Boy, glad when he even, was healthy. Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was a good line. And, like, John Miller, we thought, was like, oh, he's an up-and-coming guy. And then, boom, like, la- like last year, it was just – it was the line last year, even with Incognito and Wood – they didn't even play that great. Like the yards per carry went down a little bit and the scheme sucked. And then like they got rid of Dennis and obviously we're like, Oh great. Be able to come back. And then those two guys leave and retire or, you know, incognito goes crazy. And I'll tell and you now what, it's like, I agree. My God, incognito is getting, bad. he was even, you know, before all the off field craziness that's went on this off season and he was getting old. Okay. I, and he was definitely past his prime. Wood was still right there. Not one of the best you know, lineman in the entire NFL, but a really good rock solid starter, in my opinion, especially when you compare it to what they have. Everyone talks about Tyrod Taylor, this Tyrod Taylor, that Preston Brown, I'm telling you right now, losing wood and incognito is going to be far more damaging to this team's success or lack thereof in 2018 than freaking Preston Brown or EJ Gaines or Tyrod Taylor or anyone else. Mark my words. That's how bad this line is. I think, I think everyone agrees with you on that. I mean, it's they replace them with guys who have been replaced before. When you think about it, like these are, Groy was a guy who sat the bench the last two years. Uh, John Mil- Miller is a guy who who lost his job. Vlad Dukas is a guy who was like a, a carryover from the you know they brought him in from the Jets or whatever the heck he was like. Like these these are not guys with a proven past, and they're guys who who weren't highly picked. So yeah, dude. I mean, I, I gotta say, I'll say this though. Look. If it's going to be all about the system and it's going to be all about getting the ball out fast. And that's every, everyone who likes Peterman tends to say like, oh, he's really good with the anticipatory, you know, anticipatory. I can't even say the word, but quick releases will just say that's what he's good at. You know what I mean? And that's that's what the offense has to be. They better get the ball out fast. And we don't even know. Like, you know, we, we talk about pass protection. dude. We have no idea how the running game is going to be like how the run blocking is. Look, I have seen. In the last six or seven years, and I'll give you two instances where philo- where coaches came in and changed the philosophy where the running game went down. I remember when Chan Gailey was here and Spiller and Fred were awesome and they were like near the top of the NFL in rushing. And then, boom, Doug Marone came in and he wanted fat offensive linemen and the running game went to shit. And it wasn't even close to being good. And then even la- the, the last two years with Roman and, and Anthony Lynn. It was fine. It was top tier. Same personnel. Last year, they were what? They were in the middle of the pack for yards per carry, man. So I I think people are underestimating how the running game is going to be this year in terms of 
it's 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 a worry because if they can't run the football, dude, and they can't open holes for McCoy, they're they're fucked. Well, I'll tell you what, it's 2018. It's a passing league. It's a different type of football than the past. But if I'm the Buffalo Bills, I might set a franchise record for rushing attempts this year. I don't care if you put eight, nine, 10 guys in the box. Don't even cover the receivers. I don't care. Run the football 30, 35 times. Listen, he's past his prime, but McCoy could still play. Chris Ivory's pretty good. And I love Marcus Murphy. Run all three of those guys. Just run the ball. Try to stay in the game that way. Because if you open it up and you start passing and they got to pass block this offensive line 25, 30 times a game, it's lights out, man. It's lights out. Bad, bad shit's going to happen. Real quick, give me a make or break guy on each side of the ball for this year. I'm going to throw you a curveball on defense. I know everyone has kind of said Shaq Lawson. It, it seems it seems cheap to say that. Like, hey, former first round pick. Right, sure. I'm going to go with Jerry Hughes. And I'm going to tell you why. Since Jerry Hughes got paid, his sack production has gone down. And I know some people will say, well, you know, he's good against the run or he gets pressures, blah, blah, blah. Look, you get sacks. When you get sacks, it makes it pro- – I don't have the stats in front of me, but I'm, I'm assuming when you get a sack, it makes it harder for that team to get a first down on that drive. And that's what Jerry Hughes did, like, in, in 2013 and 2014. He has not done that since then. And he's kind of lucked out a little bit where – each year when the defensive line, which it has regressed, the defensive line, when it comes to getting after the quarterback since Jim Schwartz left. Like the first year, everyone kind of put the blame on Mario Williams, like, you know, for what happened with Rex. The second year, it was Rex Ryan's fault. Then the third year, last year, everyone was kind of eyeing Darius out until he left and he got traded. But like, Hughes has kind of gotten unscathed a little bit. And I think this is a big year for him. Like he's got a nice size contract. And he needs to start getting sacks. And I, I think if he doesn't get to like that 10, 12 sack total like he had those two years here, I think he's going to be gone next year because they he needs to get after the quarterback a little bit more than he has. And I'm not going to put it all on him. I do think maybe system was an issue. And also going back to those 2013, 2014 teams, he had a way better defensive line around him to help him out than he probably does now. But He's got a little bit more talent now than he had last year with Trent Murphy if he's out healthy and Star Latoue. I think he's going to be like it. This needs to he needs to become like the man again. You know, he it, it, like the hashtag Pay Hughes. Like he needs to be he needs to be big this year, man, for that defense because they need to get after the quarterback more. What about offense? Offense, I'm going to go with. I think this is like the simplest one. I, I think Kelvin Benjamin. Like this is like he. This is a guy who he's he's a free agent after this year. He needs he, if he wants to get paid, he needs to he needs to play well. You know, we saw what happened to Jordan Matthews when, you know, he had really four really good seasons to start his career. And then he came here last year, got hurt. You know, the quarterback situation was kind of in flux, and boom, he's out of the NFL right now. I don't even think yeah. he's, he's playing with a team anymore. It's Kelvin Benjamin, you know, and, and also with Benjamin, look, he talked shit about Cam Newton. And Cam Newton is not chopped liver. I like Cam Newton a lot. He talked crap about him. And like he kind of put a little bit of a target on him right now, and he is the main, the most talented wide receiver we have. You know, there is a big drop off. He may not be a legit number one where it's like, oh hey, I want to build my passing game around him. But there is a drop off as of now between him and Zay Jones. You know, Zay Jones may be good this year. Like we don't know. Like he he had a horrible rookie year, and there's been reports that he's been good at camp, whatever that means. But I think Benjamin 
this is a big year for him. He needs to. It's make it or break it for him in terms of like getting paid. And also, look, the Bills got a lot of money next year in the cap. It's all everyone keeps talking about. Like they got this dead cap money this year, but next year it's it's going to be Scrooge McDuck when it comes to money they can spend, and they can they can easily pay this guy a lot of money if they want. So people are hearing this on Friday. There's a game Sunday, a game that actually counts on Sunday. The Bills are opening up at Baltimore. Quickly here, Baltimore's favored by a touchdown. I want to get a prediction from you. Are the Bills going to either win this game or at least cover to seven? You're going to Vegas. You're going to make a big bet bet. What are you doing? Uh, The Bills are not covering. I think the Bills are going to lose 20 to seven. Hmm. All right. Now you said they're going to win four to five games this year. Got to put it on the record. Give me your official Bills season prediction right now. Five and 11. All right. Last thing. Super Bowl pick. Let's go, baby. It's game time now. You can never pick against the Patriots. Uh, that's one thing I have always learned when it comes to the AFC. Tom Brady, Belichick, they're the Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers of, of the AFC. You think they're dead or they're going to like lose a step or two and boom, they come back and they kill you. Uh, I got the Patriots in the AFC. Uh, and in the NFC, I got Minnesota. I think Minnesota, I, I like Kirk Cousins a lot. I think he's a really good player. I think he's going to, he's on a team that's really balanced. They got a really good defense. They got a lot of weapons for him. I think Minnesota in the, in the, the Patriots Super Bowl. Who wins? Oh gosh. I'm going to go with the Vikings. Tell you what, we agree. Tuesday on Pat with Pucks, we did our Super Bowl picks and I picked Minnesota to beat Jacksonville wow. in the Super Bowl. Yeah, everyone likes everyone likes Jack. I can see Jacksonville if Bortles is any if Bortles is like average, and that team is stacked to the gills when it comes to defense, running game, and all that. If he's just average, like sixteenth and twentieth in passing, we'll just say I could see that happening. You know, but uh, that's that's a, that's a that's an interesting one. Jacksonville they got a lot of young talent. Maybe Houston too. I think Houston if depending on what happens with Watson, like if Watson's what he was at the start of last year, that like they can go. They got a good defense. Um, but, but yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be a, it's going to be a fun season. You know, can't, can't wait till it starts. The running with Joe, follow Joe on Twitter at Buffalo wins. Hit me with your finisher. Hello, to be honest with you, I kind of feel like this entire segment has been a bunch of finishers for you, <laughs> but whatever, make it an official and give me the running with Joe finisher. My finisher is this. If you're against Nike because you're pissed off because some guy kneeled, for the anthem two years ago, stop burning your shit. Okay, give it to the home. Give it to the homeless shelter. Go to the goodwill. Give it to a, you know. Give it to a veteran who's like down on his luck. Give it a give it away. Don't go on Twitter and burn it and cut the freaking Nike swoosh off because you want to get a bunch of retweets and you you really want to you know own the libs or whatever the case may be. Give it to someone who needs that stuff. Okay, because I assure you, if you're homeless or you're a veteran down your luck. You'll, you'll wear anything, no matter where it came from or who was the spokesperson for that brand. Okay, enough. And that even goes back – that even goes to, to players who leave their teams and it's cool to, like, burn their jersey when they leave. Like, give it to the homeless people, okay? Come on. Be, you know, be nice for a change instead of trying to get a bunch of retweets and get Clay Travis to retweet your garbage. DJ, spin that shit. 
doesn't make you happy, you're doing the wrong thing. Spinning just about everything on his finger. So before getting out of here, it's time to introduce a new segment on this podcast, Spin It Scully, with my lifelong buddy from Buffalo, Scully. Before bringing him on, because this is the first time I do need to have a little context here. I've been friends with my man Scully, which obviously is his nickname. We've been boys since the days of elementary school on the west side of Buffalo. During that time, this dude is literally the most optimistic, storyline-spinning Buffalo Bills fan in the history of the universe. It doesn't matter how bad the Bills are. Doesn't matter how bad a player is. It doesn't matter what a player may do off the field. Somehow, some way, this guy is going to find a spin to it, and he's going to make it into something positive. According to Scully, back in the mid '80s when the Bills were going two and fourteen every year, Kay Stevenson was <laughs> still trying to find his way as a head coach. JP Lossman wasn't a bust; he was still growing as a player. It ju- it just doesn't matter. He'll find. You take something negative and your boy's going to find a way to spin it into a positive when it comes to his beloved Buffalo Bills. Scully, my man, what's up? Thanks for coming on, dude. What's up? What's up, brother? I've been waiting six months. We're here. And just uh, Keith Stevenson was 8-8 eight eight his first year. So I just want to let you know that. So <laughs> that was that anything I said at the top wrong? Did that sound pretty accurate? Yeah, that sounded pretty good. That sounded pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So listen, today I, I got just a couple things for you. I'm sure you're going to beat around the bush with these and bullshit your way through, but let's get going. I'm going to ask you a couple things. All right. Number one, obviously, All right, I'm here. Number one, obviously, is quarterback. Josh Allen was regarded as a project coming out of school. I get that. I really do. But come on, man. The team trades up for him and they take him seventh overall, the highest the team's ever taken a quarterback. I don't think people were expecting him to look like Aaron Rodgers in training camp in the preseason as a rookie. But seriously, are you concerned at all that he couldn't look far better, worlds better than Nathan Peterman during the preseason and winning the job? Look, at Peterman, they should change his name to Lederman because the kid's a leader, all right? <laughs> all right, the kid bounced back. He's mentally tough. Allen doesn't have his mental toughness. He had a horrible day against the Chargers. Let's it go. Bounces back. I'm I'm behind him. I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to go to Baltimore and get this done. Do you think Nate Peterman has what it takes to be a winning quarterback on an NFL team? Four-year starter in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I do. All right. Well, you know what? We could go on and on about the quarterbacks. Let's not do that because I don't even think you, of all people, can spin it when it comes to this train wreck and an offensive line. I mean, it may be... On paper, especially, not just on paper. You know what? The way they looked in the preseason, too. This may be the worst offensive line I've seen in Buffalo in 10, 15, maybe even 20 years. It's just that pathetic. Oh, listen, okay. Now, with incognito and wood gone, okay, you lost a 32 and a 35 year old. Okay, if it wasn't for a prayer that Andy Dalton threw in the fourth quarter against the Ravens to knock the Ravens out of the playoffs, we would have went the whole time of Eric Wood's career not even making the playoffs. Okay, so let these guys give these guys a chance. You cannot go off 
what happened in that preseason game. Okay. They were shuffling guys around. They're getting used to playing with each other. They're getting the sea legs underneath them. Give them a chance. All right. Let's give them a chance first before we start, you know, you know, we're not on the Titanic yet. Okay. Let's see what we got. (laughs) What about like specifically here, John Miller guy loses his job last year. They lose the bills, lose three starters from last year. If we count Cordy Glenn and their idea to replace them is by making John Miller a starter after he was benched last year? Seriously? Hey, listen, you know, he's a professional. He handled it like a professional. He's back in that line. New offensive coordinator. He's trusting the process. He's going to be just fine. Actually, I thought Miller was going to be an all-pro. I really did. I thought he was going to be an all-pro. I like the size. I like the fact that he can move. I, I haven't given up on the kids yet. I don't think you should either. Let's turn our attention to the other side of the ball because the offense is the the ones getting bashed during the preseason. It's the reason why national pundits, you know, got the Bills finishing three and thirteen near the bottom of the league. I see them if they're not last, they're second last pretty much on every power ranking. On the defensive side, though, that front seven they pretty much generated zero pressure on the quarterback throughout the preseason. You, t- you mentioned Andy Dalton earlier. He came to town in Buffalo. The guy had a picnic back there in the pocket. No one could touch him. No one got near him. And that was pretty much the case for the entire preseason. Are you concerned that this defensive line just doesn't seem to have what it takes to generate pressure? Listen, I got two words for that. So what? Okay, we're not showing any offense anything right now. Our defense is going to keep us in football games. So, therefore, we are not going to show our hand in preseason. We'll break that off. We'll break that out when we go to Baltimore. McDermott is not going to show his hand when we're going to need our defense to keep us in football games and start showing exotic blitzes in stupid preseason games that mean nothing. I mentioned just a minute ago about the national people, okay? To a man, pretty much, it doesn't matter where you go. ESPN, Sporting News, Bleacher Report, doesn't matter. Anywhere you go, pretty much everyone has the Buffalo Bills, who did, you know, we'll give them this. They were a playoff team last year. Probably a miracle playoff team, but whatever. They are a playoff team, yet pretty much every single critic has the Bills finishing dead last in the AFC East and possibly having the number one pick. I've seen mock drafts for 2019 already. They got the Bills finishing first or second. Does that bother you that the Bills are ranked so far low to start a season? I see these idiots on Twitter. Okay, they don't know the Bills that well. No one knows a hometown team like a hometown fan, okay? These guys don't know what they're talking about. They had all these predictions last year. I heard we were a dumpster fire right before the season started, but then we made the playoffs. Nobody knows anything. We just had some preseason games. We've had some turnover on the roster. Let's see what happens. These guys have no idea. They need something to talk about. And for whatever reason, they think we're taking a step back. I just don't see it that way. All right, last thing here. Bills open up two days from now in Baltimore. I'm pretty sure I know where this is going, but for the sake of it, just so you have it on the record, go ahead, Scully. Give me a game prediction for Sunday. Bills opener at Baltimore. Who is favored by a touchdown? Buffalo 21, Ravens 10. And the only reason we don't score more is because we're going to be looking ahead to our home opener. <laughs> Dude. Nobody trusts the process more than you, Scully. Nobody. You got to trust it, baby. Go Bills. (laughs) 
All right, that'll do it for this episode. Uh, I, I can't stop laughing because I just know Scully too well. And I'm telling you, every word that you just heard, he from the bottom of his heart believes it. I promise you he does. Anyway, thanks again to Jeff Perlman, New York Times bestselling author. Great interview, and he has a great book out now. Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Go out and get it. I can't wait to read it myself. Also, thanks to Joe for doing the running with Joe. And of course, thank you, Skull, for doing our first Spinach Scully segment. I'm sure we're going to do it many times throughout the Bills season because I'm sure there's going to be many negative things that happen with the Bills. And I'll need you to come on the show and find a way to spin it into something positive. Coming up on Tuesday's show, as of right now, I'm scheduled to have a huge guest. Super agent Lee Steinberg will be on the Analytics podcast Tuesday. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss that. If you haven't done so already, please go to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. It's quick. It's easy. It's free. I say it all the time. All you got to do is go on that app, hit the subscribe button, and then Bang! All new episodes automatically get sent directly to your iPhone or to your whatever device you're using, your iPad, your laptop, doesn't matter. Get sent there automatically. You can play them, delete them afterwards so it doesn't clog up all the data on your phone. If you don't have iTunes, you can also follow us on Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, I don't know, man, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are heard. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. Have a nice, safe weekend. Enjoy the NFL. Go Bills. <laughs>